Welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. My guest today is Natalie Davis, who has worked for nearly two decades shaping and implementing American healthcare policies to improve the lives of all people. In 2018, she and fellow national healthcare leader Andy Slavitt launched United States of Care to ensure that everyone in the country has access to quality, affordable health care, regardless of health status, social need, or income. In 2010 to 2016, Natalie served at CMS with the final two years as senior advisor to Andy Slavitt in his role as CMS administrator. She was deeply engaged there in implementation of one of the country's largest expansions of healthcare in modern history. In 2017, she served as director of strategic engagement at the Bipartisan Policy Center, working to launch the Future of Health Reform Initiative, which serves as a resource to policymakers, developing effective and politically viable solutions to our nation's healthcare challenges. And Natalie, we certainly have our share of challenges. Thank you for joining me here today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So let us start at the beginning of the United States of Care. Could you expand a little bit on, you know, what is the organization? What are you doing? Where are we? I know that you've kicked off an initiative earlier this year, and I want to get into that. But let's start with United States of Care as an organization. Great. Um, well, I love the chance to come on this podcast because, as you said, this is about the conversation of the future of our healthcare system. And at United States of Care, that is exactly what we're focused on. We're focused on building a healthcare system that meets the needs of all people. We know that the healthcare system is not working in large and small ways. And the political rhetoric, the complications that come with health reform really have crowded out the real needs and experiences that people have with the healthcare system. And that's what we do at United States of Care. We center those needs in, in the healthcare reform debate and discussion. So as you mentioned, we published United Solutions for Care, which are common sense changes supported by data um, of how we can fix our healthcare system so it works for people. Our solution reform agenda is really based on the needs of people and we take that and it drives all of the work that we do. So we run state and federal campaigns to ensure that laws and regulations change uh, to meet the needs of people and build that future healthcare system. Where good policy isn't developed, we have a policy innovation lab where across the healthcare system, we bring together people to build new policy to make sure we are building that more equitable healthcare system. And we go across the country and we talk about people's needs. We tell policymakers, entrepreneurs, CEOs, physicians, advocates, what we hear from people and really the common sense changes that across demographics people are asking for. So like you said, we're four and a half years old, have an amazing team of experts that have worked in state capitals, worked in Capitol Hill, worked in the administration, community engagement experts, um, really dedicated to our mission of ensuring that we have, you know, nonpartisan issues brought to policymakers to, to change our healthcare system. So that's a lot. And uh, the idea of something being nonpartisan in this day and age is refreshing, but unfortunately difficult to imagine. And want to understand a little bit further, 
the organization is a 501c3, and yet you're you're talking about policy development, which usually involves lobbying, but you're not involved in lobbying directly. We have uh, lobbying as a tool that we use when we need to, but you're right, we are a, a C3, and um, the education work that we do and the um, engagement work that we do with policymakers is is right there within the, the, the role of a nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, even policy development is uh, squarely in that, in that role and, in, in and an amazing tool that we have. Right. So the notion of developing consensus on healthcare reform ideas across the political spectrum, again, is perhaps difficult to imagine in the current climate. And I'm wondering if you could put some specifics on the board, so to speak, so we yeah. can understand where where is there consensus and where do you see opportunities to, to drive forward? Right. So the the core way we do our work is going out and talking to people across the country about their healthcare experiences and their needs. This started uh, years ago when I was at a kitchen table in San Diego talking to um, folks in a neighborhood about their experiences, and then in Philadelphia, and then it moved to Zoom, um, really listening for purely listening um, to what are people experiencing in this healthcare system? Um, what do they want out of the future healthcare system? Where, where do emotions um, spike and how can we use that to really understand where we need to change our, our system? We then have a mixed methods approach to really go deeper into more standardized research that I could go into. But what we, what we heard from people is that healthcare, when you think about it as a patient and going to the doctor, caring for your parent, caring for your kid, um, it isn't a political issue. It is just a, being a human means that you need health care. Um, and when we talk to people about what, um, what they wanted to experience and if we were building towards this future system, what did they want? And we heard 12 targeted solutions um, really that fall under four goals. So I'm going to go through those now. Number one is people have the certainty they can afford their health care. We use the word certainty really intentionally there because it's not just about affording it. It's about believing certainly that you will be able to afford it. So again, across demographics, this was the number one goal for that people had for the healthcare system. Number two is people have the security and freedom of dependable insurance coverage as their life changes. Right now we worry if we get cancer or um, you know, have a baby or age or even lose your job during a pandemic, your insurance does not feel like it is there for you. Um, and so a real desire for as my life changes, as I'm a human, can my insurance really be dependable? Number three is this idea of personalized care, when and how they need it. And, you know, we really have been digging into that to understand what does personalized mean? And it doesn't mean necessarily personalized genomics or the way we talk about it in within the healthcare system, but really people want to, the, the healthcare system to see them as a full body where they can get care in their community. And finally, number four is under, people want a healthcare system that's easy to navigate and understand, which might be our hardest one to tackle. But, you know, when you talk to people, and I know we all feel this way, it's a confusing system and you feel like you're going at it alone. And so when we took these four goals and we heard these, again, I'm going to say these are across demographics, um, political, race, ethnicity, income, geography, these four resonate so wildly through our work that this is our North Star. And then when you think of 
we brought then you know over 70 different policy um, ideas back out into the field to see what resonated again across demographics. And we heard really clearly 12 that people want. This is ranges from anywhere the most popular and most needed and most desperate is lowering prescription costs. That's why we're so pleased for the work that we did and other advocates did for the Inflation Reduction Act that was just signed by Congress, or signed by the president, a huge step towards reducing the cost for prescriptions, you know, eliminating out-of-pocket costs for basic healthcare services providing low-cost coverage options for people, expanding Medicaid. A really interesting one that rose to the top, especially for Republican voters, was providing support for caregivers who care for loved ones at home. People talked about and ranked highly the idea of improving mental health coverage, providing better maternal and newborn care, making care more convenient in the community, and getting equitable access through virtual care. So when we take all these together, again, these four goals and the 12 solution areas that people can find on our website, this is our star. It's the issues that we work on. It's the ones that are nonpartisan when you talk to people about their healthcare needs, and we believe are the targeted solutions that really will make a difference in our healthcare system. So you'll forgive me for being cynical, mm-hmm. um, having been around the block on healthcare policy and being a recovering health policy wonk. One way or another, probably every decade since the 60s, we've had a version of this list of priorities and and a lot of good intentions, but but here we are, right? So is this time different? And I, you know, I assume your answer is yes. And I'm wondering whether you can point to some sort of specific examples of how it's different this time. And you know, yeah. yes, the Inflation Reduction Act has taken some strides in the the right direction, but there's still a long way to go. There is a long way to go. I am an optimist and I don't think I could do this job if I weren't. And so (laughs) I am going to start with the Inflation Reduction Act because it is a really big deal. You know, there will be over 3 million people will be able to remain insured and 14 million people will save an average of $800 a year for the, through the advanced premium tax credits. Mm -hmm. We, for the first, in th- what is it, 30 years since we've been trying to get Medicare to negotiate the price of drugs, 62 million people are going to be impacted by potential prescription drug reductions. Mm-hmm. There is a cap for insulin um, for benef- Medicare beneficiaries at $35 per month. And as you, as you probably would agree, the way Medicare goes, the rest of the healthcare system usually does. And so we're excited to see this progress and see how this continues to impact the rest of the healthcare system. But I'll give you some other examples. North Carolina is looking to expand Medicaid, and it's a place that has been very entrenched in not doing so. And and they're on the, we think, on the brink of doing that. The Advancing Telehealth Beyond COVID-19 Act was through the House of Representatives, and we're excited to see that um, move through the Senate. That was a bipartisan, you know, vote and really making sure people had access to quality care through virtual virtual care. The United States of Care has been a part of passing legislation in three states to ensure over 700,000 people had more access to coverage options, um, which we're so proud of that work that we've done. And so I think there is a lot of entrenched views. That is true. Um, there's a lot to do. But if we take on the right targeted issues, if we talk about it to people in the right way, 
I, I do think that there are places where progress is really possible. Well, great. That is encouraging. If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Natalie Davis at United States of Care. Natalie, we're talking about your career as of late has been connected to the career of another healthcare innovator and advocate, Andy Slavitt. And I'm interested, and I'm sure my listeners are interested in learning a little bit about what is it like to work with Andy? Great. Yeah, I have um, had the real pleasure of getting to know Andy, as well as a lot of other luminaries that have helped start United States of Care, from Mario Molina to Senator Frist, Governors Bashir and Douglas. So many people came together to help launch this nonpartisan organization. But I, I did get a chance to work at first, very closely with Andy, where he had come into the federal government to do the healthcare.gov turnaround. And at that time, that's what I was working on was healthcare.gov and implementation of that policy. And, you know, when it was announced he was going to be the principal deputy administrator, I had just, I thought very luckily had a coffee with him scheduled for that same day. And, you know, I, I was ready to get out of the government. I was exhausted, like so many career staff were and came to him and, and kind of said, hey, welcome to CMS. There's a lot of stuff you can fix. Here's five ideas. Good luck. Can you get me a job somewhere else? And thankfully, he said, why don't you help me? fix these things and stay. And uh, that was the beginning of our relationship of um, working together and really running towards the hardest problems and working with a huge network of people to fix those problems. It was so amazing serving our country. And if anybody has thoughts about joining the federal government, it's a great place to work. You'll never find people who work harder than than the federal employees. Um, And, you know, part of working together was I set up our listening tour across the country where we talked to people and advocates and policymakers and governors and reporters and entrepreneurs, you know, whoever it was about the healthcare system. And we would bring that back to the people writing policy in Baltimore, Maryland. And you can see remnants of that in United States of Care and how we do our work, but it was so important for me and refreshing for me and important for the whole you know, our, our healthcare system that runs Medicare, Medicaid, Marketplace, and dual eligibles to go out and understand what's working and not and bring that back into, you know, the people that are writing policy or, or running the programs. And so when the, the Obama administration ended and we decided we had a lot more work to, we wanted to do together and, and starting the United States of Care, starting Town Hall Ventures, um, and some other projects were, were amazing to be able to do. And he's a our board chair emeritus. He is a friend and mentor. And I'm just so, so thankful for that day where I got to meet him and uh, to have the courage to say that he had stuff to fix. And he, he asked me to, to continue working with him. Well, that's great. And it's refreshing to hear the way in which the institutions that we sometimes collectively think of as ivory towers have, have really taken it on the road and really uh, done a done a good job of listening, uh, as you've described, both from within government and beyond government. The progress made in recent days and against metrics developed and policy priorities developed through your organization's process, and I guess I'd like to dive a little deeper into that process. It sounds like it's a combination of think tank and public policy surveys and conversations. 
what else goes into the the special sauce here? Yeah, so this is one of the, my favorite parts of the work that we do. So as we talk about going out and, and listening to people across the healthcare system, that the, across our country, that is where we start all of our work. We go out with some basic questions and ask people about their experiences and listen for the themes across demographics that continue to repeat over and over again. Usually that is... It can be pretty emotional for people, including either the emotion of being angry about the healthcare system or afraid or upset um, or feeling vulnerable. As we then listen to those themes, we uh, move into more of a structured research process where we are talking to people in focus groups. We are over-indexing on who then we are engaging with in focus groups or online diaries by making sure that we're really listening to people that have historically faced barriers to our healthcare system. So that's people with low incomes, people in rural America, people of color, making sure that we lift up those, we call it listening loudly, making sure that we're really lifting those up to ensure that we're building that healthcare system, it works for all people. And then as we move into those themes and we hear those more clearly and we've, you know, hear the words that resonate with people in those focus groups, we then move to quantitative polls so we can put some numbers behind it. And like you said, make sure that we are seeing these issues, how they fall across political demographics or um, other demographics. And then, you know, then we, we start over and that work never ends for us. We have a team right now that was in rural South Carolina talking to Black Americans about their healthcare experiences. And our head of that research, Dr. Venice Haynes, is going back in a couple of weeks to say, here's what we heard from you. Here are the barriers that are you know, so specific to your community and to being in rural South Carolina. Did we hear you right? And how can you as a community you know, talk to your policymakers or others to ensure that these issues that you know, we heard over and over again are really being addressed? So I'm so proud of the way that our team listens and we carry that through our policy recommendations. You know, it's, it's unique to us that when we send a letter to Congress or we send a letter to the administration, we are first putting in their data of what we've heard from talking to people. We're centering everything that we do on why we're tackling those issues and why they matter to the people that our policymakers serve and that have voted our politicians in and the you know, target solutions that people are looking for. Can I tell you one of my favorite findings from our work? Sure. I was just going to say that's that's powerful stuff because usually you just get the song and dance one way or another, but without the data and as much of the detail on individual lives affected. Yeah, that's right. And, and something that kind of occurred to me early when I was conducting the, the beginning of this work, when I was the one conducting these conversations out in communities or on one-on-one -on -one phone calls, you know, people would say, Natalie, I'm happy to talk to you about this, but my story is unique. I'm too rich. I'm too poor. I'm too sick. I'm too healthy. I'm too stupid. I'm too smart. I'm too lucky. I'm too unlucky. Do this thing called healthcare well. So I'll tell you what, you know, what my story is, but it's probably not relevant to your research. And there are definitely unique stories, but there are a lot of similar stories or similar themes that people had. And it, it struck me that everybody thinks they are failing the healthcare system. That is a unique experience that when you don't know what doctor to go to, you don't understand your prescription, you end up in the wrong, you know, insurance call, waiting line, whatever it is, you think it's your own fault because we never actually talk about this as a system that's failing people. 
you know, we even did a focus group on people who checked a box that said they were satisfied with their insurance. And we're like, oh my gosh, what, who are these people satisfied with their insurance? <laughs> who are uh, these people? <laughs> who are these people? We got to talk to them. And so we did. And it turned out that the word satisfying is interesting. They, they checked it because they're satisfied because they believe they have better insurance than other people that they don't want their insurance to go away because other people have it worse. And what if they were them? And so it's almost a misnomer that, that they're satisfied. It's more, I don't want this to go away because it could be worse. And that, that's something that came up over and over again of people. When we say people want targeted solutions, well, people don't like the healthcare system. They scotch taped and duct taped and all this, this system together where they know this provider and this pediatrician and where this hospital is. And there's a real worry that if we mess with it too much, all of that goes away. So even if we don't like the system, there's a real fear of, of what would happen if, if we, you know, did too big, too much, too quickly. Um, so I think this is why these 12 solutions, you know, they're big for all of us that work in healthcare, but they also are very, they're very straightforward and simple, you know, lower prescription costs. That's a very targeted change that, that people want to see. Yeah. So a couple of them seem particularly thrust into the forefront as a result of the pandemic. I'm thinking yeah. of virtual care. I'm thinking of mental health issues. Is that a theme that you've seen in your interviews and conversations just because that's coincided with the time that we've been dealing with the pandemic and and how do you see the work evolving coming out of the other side i mean depending yeah, on who you ask we have yeah. already or we haven't yet but maybe closer to the end than we are to the beginning i hope i sure hope so i think you're right you know one of the things that the pandemic laid clear to people was that there the cracks in the system that maybe they either imagined or felt or felt thought they felt just for themselves and their family were real and that there are parts of our healthcare system that really that really are broken you know there's a real thankfulness of course of the hospitals and nurses and others that really pulled us through this pandemic but a real understanding of the system has flaws and, you know, whether that was because we were also then talking about race and discrimination, you know, people are really recognizing that our maternal health care system isn't working. And so that's coinciding with the time of the pandemic, but it also because of the real discussions we were having as a country about race. You're totally right. Virtual care ex exploded, as we all saw. And for us, when we studied that through our innovation lab, it was to really understand, can virtual care be a tool that will increase access to people who have not historically had it? And so we started that out by saying, who hasn't had access? Okay, let's older adults, rural America, let's go talk to them. Are they using virtual care? Do they want to, you know, what will help them do so? And through that research, you know, we've continued to build out new policy there through our, our lab, like I said, but also worked with Congress to make sure that we were funding broadband during the pandemic, which was great to see. So people could have this access to virtual care. And, you know, something I don't think a lot of people realize is that with the end of the public health emergency, there are a lot of things and kind of limbo and access to virtual care in such an easy way is one of those. And so that's why we're excited to see the House, you know, work on this bipartisan legislation to expand telehealth afterwards. And I think it was an OIG report recently looking at what are the barriers, what are the things that need to get ticked off in order to make that further progress on continued access to telehealth after the emergency. 
Yeah, that's right. The last one that I think became more prominent or more emotionally visceral through the pandemic was this idea of providing support to caregivers who are caring for loved ones at home. Either you were caring for loved ones at home or you felt so distant from loved ones who weren't in your home, who maybe were suffering in a healthcare situation that you couldn't help in. Or if you did, you were, you know, you could have been worried about giving them COVID. And so it's this really interesting kind of moment, I think, where caregiving and this role that people have, even if they don't call themselves a caregiver, we're recognizing the toll um, that that takes on people um, on their own mental health, on their own ability to you know, work in lucrative jobs or, you know, even have downtime. This idea of caregiving is something we're really excited to continue to dive into with other people who have been studying this for a long time. So we've talked a bunch about federal level initiatives. I know you're also doing work at the state level. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit as well. Any, yeah, so, any sort of signal uh, particular cases that we could dive into? Yeah, so we, like I said, and, and you just mentioned, one of the um, ways we see we drive progress throughout our healthcare system and throughout our country is working at the state level. And we go uh, to, to states where there are issues that, again, are on our 12 targeted solution list mm-hmm. and where we can be of value. So there are already advocates or legislators that are thinking about this idea, seeing a real need for it in their state and finding, you know, popular kind of or and, and needs for policy changes, and we go and and provide support that um, is needed in that state to to really help push legislation over the finish line and make sure that we're there to help implement it. That if we can be helpful in that way, and so some of the work that we've been doing at the states is to advance what's called public option legislation. This is legislation to make sure that people have access to affordable health care across the board. When you talk to people about healthcare, it's about the affordability issue. And so in these states, making sure the legislation is passed so more people can have access to affordable health insurance. As we look across the future of our state work, you know, that'll continue to to be a part of it, as well as strengthening the the marketplaces and uh, Medicaid expansion. There's also a real need to make sure that we're eliminating out-of-pocket costs. This shows up on our solution, but states can have, you know, a real role in making sure that these um, needs that people have for no out-of-pocket costs for preventive services, you know, states can continue to codify that to make sure that those services are available to people. And, you know, we see a real need to make sure that we're expanding access to basic eligibility. And so we saw over the pandemic, lots of states, including a lot of uh, Republican ones who haven't been working on Medicaid expansion, a lot of states took up expanding Medicaid for pregnant women and postpartum. And so uh, making sure that those stay in place and that they're strengthened is going to be really important for our healthcare system. And then finally, expanding mental health coverage through your primary care and making sure that people really get the mental health coverage that they need. This is one that spiked, of course, across demographics, Democrats, Republicans, independents, people of um, all race, ethnicity and income. Um, There's, like you mentioned, a real mental health crisis going on and people are ready, I think, to seek seek the care and we need to make sure that they can get it. Well, Natalie, to wrap things up, I want to ask you, If you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself five years in the future, what's one thing in healthcare that you would hope or maybe expect to find has changed drastically? 
I hope in five years we are building this healthcare system for all people because the voice of organizations who represent people is louder than that of the industry. That means talking to people from the beginning, having them at the table, and really removing healthcare as a political weapon. You know, these healthcare solutions, United Solutions for Care that I've talked about today, this is the roadmap of the of the targeted solutions that really do build that progress towards that system. And so in five years. That's what I hope we're going to see. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you until next time.